So very good morning to you all. Uh, today we're getting back to, um, to our studies in Luke. And that brings us to chapter 6 and verses 43 to 49. If you remember, it was many weeks ago now that I spoke on uh, meanness or mercy, a tale of two Sabbaths. And you may be surprised to notice that my passage that day, which concluded a series of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees, came at the start of the very same chapter. Well, really, five sermons on a single chapter feels like rather slow progress, doesn't it? But in fact, so much happens in this chapter that we couldn't really have gone any faster. It opened with those two Sabbaths, but then came the selection of the 12 apostles, a protracted healing session, and then began the vitally important Sermon on the Plain, which we may, we may take as Jesus' kingdom manifesto. This teaching, echoing the much longer Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, moves swiftly through some sources of blessing and cursing, doing good to those who harm us, mercy and generosity, taking care who we follow, and seeing our own faults before the faults of others. Now, this is the talk that Jesus chose to give, right at this crucial turning point in his ministry where he began to share his mission and message in partnership with the Twelve. So among other things, it must comprise commissioning instructions to the Twelve. And significantly, we might think, also instructions to those disciples who weren't chosen to be among the Twelve, but would still have to work with them. Hence, perhaps, the strong emphasis throughout it on kingdom values as to status and on personal responsibility in our relationships. In broad brushstrokes, this means treating others as we would wish to be treated, regardless of status and whatever they might do to us. Now let's read these concluding remarks, Luke 16, 43 and following. And we might note that they pick up the thread from verse 40. A disciple becomes like his master. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I believe the parable of the trees demands answers to three questions. The first, more technical one, is simply, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about fruit? And the other two get much more pastoral and personal. Who am I following? And what kind of tree am I? And last of all comes the famous passage about building your house on the rock. In effect, that rephrases question three, what kind of tree am I, in different words. What am I building? Question one, then, what does Jesus mean by fruit? The Greek word karpos, 
here translated fruit, occurs frequently throughout the New Testament. It's used variously to describe fruit of trees, fruit of the vine, or fruit of field crops. But it's also used metaphorically to mean the result, the outcome of a certain action or a certain way of life. Way back in chapter 3, you might remember, John the Baptist preached, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. The axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and burned. An essential feature of any fruit is, of course, that it contains the seed of the next generation, of the plant that bore it. In my garden, the wallflowers and the lupins are really good at that, which is a wonderful blessing. But as every gardener knows, weeds are also pretty good at the same thing. And that's very much an unblessing. So there are good and bad plants self-seeding in my garden all the time, and sometimes I can't tell the difference between the two until the fruit or the flower appears. Our lives, too, produce fruit-bearing seeds, which will self-replicate if we let them reach maturity. Throughout the Bible, God's constantly looking for his people to be fruitful. And one thing that must surely mean is that we're supposed to produce more people like ourselves in the world. More wonderful super-Christians. Or more Christians like us, anyway. And if this multiplication is the fruit of our lives, it is not the product of mere exertion on the part of the tree. I don't see my trees straining to squeeze out one more plum, nor can I cajole, threaten, or beat them into fruitfulness. Basically, if the tree is good, it'll naturally produce good fruit year after year. Now, of course, I can water it, feed it, prune it, but it's the nature of the tree itself that determines what fruit it bears. And of course, that raises prematurely the question I want to come to last of all. What kind of tree am I? For now, let's just be satisfied with defining good fruit in terms of the kind of characteristics Jesus has just been outlining in his Sermon on the Plain. A good tree is a person like he's just been describing. And as he says in conclusion, that's someone who not only hears his instructions, but actually puts them into action. As with the tree, so with the human life. If you're a laburnum, you're not going to produce any apples, however hard you try. It's not a question of doing good. However much our inner Pharisee might want to redefine the Bible as a rule book. Rather, it's a matter of becoming the kind of person who just does good. Question two. Who, or to be posh, whom are we following? In verses 39 to 42, Jesus warned us of the dangers of following, or indeed being, blind guides. And in verse 40, he referred to a disciple becoming like his rabbi. It matters who we follow. Not just because bad leaders are downright dangerous, but also because if we follow them, we'll end up like them. The leaders we follow affect the fruit of our lives. And most of you in this room are, like me, trying to follow Jesus already. But insofar as we sometimes fall short of that radical following described in the Sermon on the Plain, we're following other examples, not that of Jesus. 
It's like St. Paul says in Romans 6. Whoever you give yourselves over to serve, his servant you are. Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Or, and I know you'd be disappointed if I didn't quote St. Bob, um, so here goes. St. Bob of Dylan puts it like this. It don't... <laughs> My wife doesn't want me to do the voice. So, no, no, to... No, I'm going to honour my wife on this occasion. As St. Bob of Dylan puts it, it don't matter who you are, you've still got to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The fact is, there's no shortage of would-be leaders out there in the world for us to choose from. From politicians and pundits to lifestyle gurus and influencers, there's no shortage of voices out there saying, follow me. But in these verses, Jesus warns us we have to judge the tree by its fruit. What is the outcome of this person's life? What's their family and home life like? Who are their friends? Are they good work colleagues? Or do those close to them find them to be braggarts, bullies, and blighters? What, in short, is their fruit? Because it's their fruit not the attractive flowers of their gifting, charisma, charisma, or anything else that defines the tree they really are. So, politicians, Bible teachers, philosophers, journalists, who am I following? And do I really want to end up like them? Because if Jesus is right, a disciple ends up like his master. Numerous blind guides clamor for followers all the time. Meanwhile, some of the best and most helpfully influential people on the planet don't even realize it. John Wimber used to say, if you want to know whether you're a leader, look over your shoulder. If there's a lot of people there looking to you, then you're a leader. He's trying to get us away from the idea that church leadership is conferred or defined by the letters after our names or the titles before them. Good leaders are obvious because A, they're already happily serving others. B, they're always surrounded by people. I'd suggest people who are not afraid to tease them. And C, they don't have to raise their voices to be heard. You can tell them by their fruit. And one reason why this is vitally important is that people belong before they believe, and people know good fruit when they see it. There is a kind of life, a way of being, that naturally draws people in. Now, it has nothing to do with apologetics, the branch of theology concerned with arguing in favor of the gospel. As my friends will tell you, I like an argument as much as the next man, but in the vineyard, we'd rather win a friend than win an argument. Too many traditional models of evangelism, I believe, rely on a completely outdated set of tools. I have much more to say on that topic And if you want to hear it, you can listen to a 2019 talk, uh, I think you can still get it as a podcast, called Four G's of the Gospel. If you can't find it, I'll send you the notes. Personally, I've come to the firm conclusion that the only apologetic that works in this postmodern world, the only apologetic it finds persuasive at all, is that of a life well lived. And so that leads us inexorably to our third And probably most vital question, what kind of tree am I? 
What kind of tree am I? What kind of tree am I? What kind of tree am I? Because, verse 44, if I'm a eucalyptus or something, or gorse bush or something like that, don't expect me to produce any oranges because it's not going to happen. And be in no doubt that the whole Bible clearly teaches God wants and expects his people to produce good fruit. If you doubt it, just do a quick Bible word search on the word fruit. You'll soon find that. And one particularly clear example is the well-known parable of the vine in John 15. Particularly verse 16, where Jesus says, I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should survive. <coughs> we all know, I think, that we're saved from something, but do we really understand that we're also saved for something? In John 15, Jesus is portrayed as the vine with ourselves as his branches. And the central point of the whole parable is that we need to remain, or abide, as the old timers used to say, in the vine so that we can be fruitful. If we dry up or drop off, we're only good for the bonfire, just like John the Baptist said. It's a sobering thought. John 15 echoes the core message of our passage. We don't just have to try and do good things. We have to become the kind of people who naturally do good things. We have to become good trees, become living branches, and that depends on our connection with Jesus. And verse 45 reminds us of the outflow, the fruit of our lives. It's conditioned by what we have stored up inside us. <clears throat> the ESV and other older versions of the Bible quite correctly translate this, our treasures. The question is what we choose to treasure, what we value, and what we do about it. The great evangelist and preacher, Watchman Nee, once preached a sermon on the spiritual battle against temptation, which he compared to a deadly dogfight. Member of the congregation, see, there, there were fills even in those days, uh, shouted out, which dog wins in your life, Mr. Knee? And he replied without hesitation, whichever I feed the most. A tree that's well-fed, watered, and pruned will produce far more fruit, far more fruit than a neglected one. That's if it's the right kind of tree to begin with. And if you have any questions about what kind of tree you are, please come forward for prayer at the end. But before we get to our final question, no talk on fruitfulness can afford to ignore what St. Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This comes in Galatians 5, and I'd like us to turn there briefly, if we could. There we go. There's a whole sermon series uh, in these verses, and I've preached most of it. But today I'll just read them over and then try to pick out one point that's vital for our purposes today. Galatians 5, 16 to 25. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you're anything like me, it's a constant frustration that we so often fall short of this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest of it. <clears throat> I'm supposed to be a new creation in Christ, am I not? So where does all this other stuff come from? Why am I still producing bad fruit? I come to believe that here too the answer lies in the concept of fruit. The gifts of the Spirit can be imparted instantaneously. The fruit takes time to grow. But we can always cultivate the tree. We can make sure we're feeding the right dog. Paul's walking by the Spirit is pretty much identical as a concept to Jesus abiding in the vine. Staying attached to Jesus, being fed and influenced by his Spirit is the one thing needful. We can trust the Father to prune out whatever's unfruitful in our lives. But we have to stay connected to Jesus with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, Luke 10, 27. I remember a conversation I had a while back with someone who was just finding her way back to Jesus after a difficult time in her life. And she said something wonderful, which is a great example of what we're thinking about today. I wish I'd actually recorded her words, but here's a paraphrase. I finally realized that Jesus is after relationship not perfection. I've been trying to overcome old bad habits so that I could come to Jesus. Now I just come to him as I am, and they seem to fall away from me. Pastoral ministry would be a whole lot easier if we could all grasp that simple but counterintuitive thought. As Eric Clapton joyfully sang, Everybody knows the reason. Everybody knows the score. I have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. Good character is a fruit, not a gift. And the right kind of life, a life simply connected with Jesus, attentive to his teaching and his leading, a life that runs to him, not away from him, with our sins and mistakes and problems, will produce that fruit in due time. Fourth and last, what are we building? Question four. As Jesus ends this teaching, he changes metaphors. Now, my guess is that people have been shouting out, oh, Lord, you're wonderful, oh, Lord this, Lord that. He wasn't one to just assume people were calling him Lord. And, but neither was he one to miss out on a preaching opportunity if it was handed to him on a plate. So I imagine him taking advantage of what was already happening in the audience to pose his vital question in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? It's John the Baptist's argument again about fruit worthy of repentance. The gospel I grew up with, and some of the older ones among us will know what I mean, 
spoke of believing in your heart and confessing with your lips. Well, I don't think Jesus or John the Baptist would find that at all a complete formula for repentance that leads to eternal life. The likes of James in particular, but the epistle writers in general have this in common with Jesus. They clearly expect that the outcome, the fruit of our lives, will give evidence of the change that God has worked inside. Calling Jesus Lord is one thing. Honouring him as Lord by actually doing what he says is another altogether. It is that honouring, that fruitful life that this passage calls us, calls us to, both to recognise in the leaders that we choose to follow and to display and enjoy ourselves. That is building a house that will stand against the flood. That's the kind of church community it's safe to join. A fruitful life is a win-win, or even a win-win-win, because it's not only God who enjoys the fruit. We too enjoy it, even as we produce it. Who could fail to enjoy a life that is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And the third win is that in the marvelous economy of God's kingdom, it's this very fruit in our lives that's going to draw other people to Jesus. And as they come to him, so we are reproducing the life they've seen in us, the life of Jesus in the lives of others. Then we will indeed bear much fruit, as Jesus calls us to. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord, we bring our lives to you again. Some of us wondering whether we're the right kind of tree. Some of us conscious that we haven't fed and pruned and watered as we might have done. But we come to you and say, change our hearts if they need changing. Turn our hearts towards you so that we may treasure the things that you treasure and bring forth good treasure when we speak. Cleanse our lips, Lord. Cleanse our hearts. Cleanse our thoughts. Now come, Holy Spirit, and empower your people to live the lives that you've called us to lead. Amen.